I want you to meet uh, Snicky Snack Hippo. Yes, uh, this, ladies and gentlemen, is a very important item in the Anderson household, primarily because this is what causes our son to simply be in awe. I mean, when we are having a rough day and we want Bennett to just calm down, be quiet for a while, you know, let, let mom and dad have some, uh, have some husband-wife time, this is the hippo that we go to, all right? When Bennett sees this hippo, Snicky Snack Hippo, his eyes just widen. All of a sudden, he, he's just in awe. He begins to marvel at this hippo. In fact, I have a picture of what he kind of looks like. This may not be a perfect picture of it, but this will show you a little bit of what he looks like in times like this. We're pulling it up there. There he is. He just has his eyes wide open, and he's just, he's just marveling at this hippo. And he can look at this hippo for hours on end without, without even moving. He loves Snicky Snack Hippo. Well, friends, today I want to talk about something that is marvelous. Something that is awe-inspiring. Something that causes, and should cause, rather, our eyes to widen and go, wow, look at that. Today, I want to talk about our marvelous salvation. Our marvelous salvation. Today we are continuing our series in the book of 1 Peter. And Peter is trying to open our eyes. He's trying to get us to see the beauty that is our salvation in Jesus Christ. He wants us to recognize how awesome this salvation is. And so today, my intent is to get us to open our eyes and to marvel at our marvelous and beautiful salvation. Let's read together. We're in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 to 16 today. Verses 10 to 16. This is 1 Peter 10 to 6, chapter 1, 10 to 16. It says this, Of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully who prophesied of the grace that would come to you. Searching what? Or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when He testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed that not to themselves, but to us, they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the Gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things which angels desire to look into. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts, as in your ignorance, but as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the opportunity that we have even now to learn from it 
and to transform our lives as a result of reading it and understanding it. I pray, Father, that Your Spirit would guide this time. May this be a worshipful experience of diving into Your Word and pulling out things that that we can truly, truly apply to our lives today. In Christ our Lord's name we pray. Amen. Verse 10. Verse 10. Peter starts out, he says this, Of this salvation, of this salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully who prophesied of the grace that would come to you. Now that phrase, of this salvation, we need to clarify quickly what, what salvation is Peter speaking of here. Well, we've learned in weeks past, and I refer you uh, to the previous messages if you have not been here with us the last couple Sundays, we've learned that Peter is not simply talking about justification in Christ. He's not simply talking about our expression of faith that gets us into the presence of the Lord after this life is over. Instead, Peter is focused on what is called salvation glorification. He is speaking about the opportunity that you and I have to obtain kingdom glory. I refer you to verses 5, 7, and 9 to see this. He refers to it as as a hope. It's something that's on reserve, waiting for us to take hold of. When Peter says, of this salvation the prophets have inquired, he's saying, of the prospect of kingdom glory, the, the, the prophets searched and inquired. Of the prospect of kingdom glory, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you. Now Peter is suggesting here that the prophets of God in Old Testament times, who were in the business of inquiry and careful searching, were looking for a coming grace, a coming gift. Peter here is continuing the theme of kingdom glory. He is saying that the prophets inquired and searched carefully about the opportunity that they and perhaps others would have to be participants in God's kingdom. And they prophesied of this grace, this gift, this opportunity that would come to the people that Peter is writing to. They foretold of this coming opportunity for honor and glory in the kingdom. And so let's be very clear. When Peter declares... That the, excuse me, Peter declares that the prophets were not only concerned with who the Messiah would be, but also with what the Messiah would bring with him, kingdom glory. Not just who the person of the Messiah would be, but what he would bring. And you see, this makes perfect sense. Because no other, no other individual in Old Testament times would have been more inclined to look for vindication and honor and glory in the future than the prophets of the Old Testament. Why? Because they were the ones who were ridiculed, who were mocked, who were persecuted for their faithfulness to God. And it makes sense that they would be looking, that they would be inquiring of God, when, when will you offer us vindication? When will you reward us for our sacrifice on earth? It makes sense that this is what the prophets were looking for. They weren't just looking for the person of Christ, but for what Christ would bring with Him. When would you vindicate me, they asked. When would you reward my faithfulness? 
Notice verse 11. It says this. This is what they were searching for. Searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when He testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. Now that phrase, searching what or what manner of time, not exactly an easy phrase to understand in the original language as Peter's writing it. It can be translated in a couple of different ways. I would suggest, and I, I believe strongly, that, that Peter here is suggesting that the prophets have a variety of questions that surround the context and the nature of the coming kingdom glory. That surround the context and the nature of the coming kingdom glory. Questions like these. How will the sufferings of the Messiah end in glories? How is it possible that, that the Messiah would suffer and glories would follow? The Old Testament prophets did not understand that in its fullness. A second question, what will this kingdom glory look like? What will the kingdom look like? What will glory in the kingdom look like? What will positions of honor, how will that be delineated? And a third question that perhaps relates to this theme, when will kingdom glory be bestowed on the faithful? When is the kingdom coming? And when will those who have been faithful to Christ gain an inheritance in that kingdom? So when it says searching what or what manner of time, these are the kinds of ideas, these are the kinds of questions that they perhaps were looking into. And we can also look at the first century questions, right? Remember what the disciples asked in Matthew chapter 24? They said, Lord, when is the kingdom coming? They wanted to know when. They wanted to know when is the kingdom coming and when are we going to be participants in your kingdom glory? How about Acts chapter 1 verse 6? Jesus had risen from the dead. And what was their question to Him? They said, Lord, is this the time that You're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? They were looking for the context, for the nature of this kingdom, just like the prophets of the Old Testament. They wanted to know when it would happen, what it would look like. How could it possibly be that sufferings would end in glory? And notice Peter says it was the Spirit of Christ who guided the prophets in their search for the nature and context of the coming kingdom glory. The Spirit of Christ who guided their search. Now this is, um, you know, Paul in Romans chapter 8, he uses the terms Spirit of God and Spirit of Christ interchangeably. Um, in, in this case, I believe Peter's doing the same thing. I, be, I believe Peter's referring here to the Holy Spirit. He's saying the Spirit of Christ, meaning the Spirit sent by or coming from Christ, being sent by Christ. And so we see here that Peter is indicating that the Holy Spirit of God, sent by Jesus Christ, as Jesus indicates in John 15 and John 16, for those who would come, for those who would uh, believe and when Christ had left, they would receive the Spirit. That same Holy Spirit was guiding the search of the prophets. Christ had sent the Spirit to them and was helping them and guiding them. Notice what Peter also says in 2 Peter 1.21. He says, For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by who? The Holy Spirit. And so Peter here, we're looking for a little bit of... of uh, cohesiveness to the text. And it's better to understand Spirit of Christ as the Spirit sent by Christ or originating from Christ. 
Okay, we understand what the Old Testament prophets were searching for. We understand that they were trying to comprehend the nature and the context surrounding this coming kingdom and the Messiah who would bring it. But did they find what they were looking for? Were they able to ascertain answers to their questions? Notice verse 12 says this, To them it was revealed, to the prophets it was revealed, that not to themselves, but to us, they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels desire to look into. Did the prophets of old find answers to their questions about the nature and the context of the kingdom glory? I answer in part, yes, they did. In part, they did. They received answers. They recorded revelation, and you can read about it in your Old Testament. Prophets like Isaiah, Micah, Malachi, Daniel, and others. They recorded revelation given to them. But the reason why I say the answer is a partial yes is because they did not fully comprehend the intricacies of that revelation. Did they receive answers to their questions? Yes. But were they able to understand them fully? Was it for their time? Peter says no. It wasn't for themselves. The revelation given to them was not for their time. It was not for them at that point in time to fully comprehend. Not to themselves, but to us. They were ministering the things which have now been reported to you. Here is a mighty truth of Scripture. When you read your Old Testament in particular, when you read the prophecies of the coming Messiah, the coming kingdom, those prophecies, Peter says, were given to the prophets of old for your benefit. They were given for your benefit. The Old Testament, the revelation of the prophets, that is God's gift you. They only stood it, understood it in part. We, this side of the cross of Christ, have the privilege, have the honor of looking back at that revelation and saying, I get it. I get it. The seeds of faithfulness sown by the prophets of old yielded fruit generations for generations later. For those who would one day see the coming of the Messiah, who would observe His perfect life, hear His profound teaching, and witness His unlawful death and glorious resurrection. Today we look back at these prophets and many others who foretold the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow, and we say, Aha! We get it. We know the One to whom you prophesied about. By His resurrection we've seen a glimpse. We've gotten a taste of the glories that are to follow. And this same Jesus has told us that if we would but stay the course, if we would but remain faithful to Him in the midst of awful trials and persecutions, this same Messiah tells us that there is a degree of glory that is indescribable awaiting for us in heaven. It wasn't for the time of the Old Testament prophets. And Jesus likens 
Jesus indicates this in Matthew 13, 17. Notice what He says. He says, Assuredly, I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. In particular, this is in reference to the parables, which the Pharisees could not understand. But, Peter, but Jesus here is likening it to the prophets of old who understood only in part of what they were receiving from the Lord. You know, 55 years ago, last Wednesday, February 21, 1952, five American missionaries set a course for Ecuador. You may know the story. Many of you know the story quite well. Jim Elliott, Ed McCulley, Roger Yadarian, Peter Fleming, and their pilot, Nate Saint. They landed in Ecuador 55 years ago last Wednesday, and they made preparations to evangelize the violent Waurani Indian tribe. The missionaries made contact with this Indian tribe deep in the rainforest of Ecuador. They would fly their plane overhead and drop down gifts in a basket that they might make correspondence with this violent tribe, pagan tribe. And they were encouraged by these friendly encounters. And so these five men, with their families at the base camp in Ecuador, decided to land closer to the tribe's base to make personal contact. And so nearly four years, after nearly four years of training and preparation, four years of flying by and passing down gifts, praying for the Waurani tribe, these five men flew into the jungles of Ecuador in hopes of making contact with the Waurani tribe. They met them, amazingly enough, near a river near their tribe, the Kure River. But this first personal contact with the tribe ended in tragedy. A group of ten Waurani men ambushed and killed these five missionaries right there by the Kure River. Though their untimely death all but seems to crush the prospect of bringing the gospel of Jesus Christ to these violent Indian people, the death of the missionaries was not in vain. After the death of her husband, Elizabeth Elliot, and other, other missionaries continued their efforts with the Waurani tribe, Amazingly, these later missionaries were able to make contact with them and led many of them to faith in Jesus Christ. Just last year, the movie End of the Spear showed up in movie theaters nationwide. This, story, this film documents the perspective of Nate Saint, the pilot of those missionaries who died trying to witness and evangelize the Waurani tribe. And in this film, at the end of the film... You can see Nate Saint, the pilot's son, return to the tribe, meet his father's killer, and yet have a missionary effort with that same tribe. Well, on the surface, it may seem that the death of these five missionaries was a dismal end to such a hopeful missionary endeavor, their sacrifice was not in vain. While these five men were not able to see the fruit of their four plus years of pre preparing to reach this tribe, their efforts were not in vain. 
their ministry paved the way for future missionaries to come and to minister to the Waorani people. Their sacrifice inspired the lives of countless Christians who point to this very story as their inspiration for participation in missions work today. Their death, their deaths would ultimately save the lives of so many Waorani people who were living in a dark pagan world. What these men did 55 years ago last Wednesday was for the benefit of others in the distant future. To them it was revealed that not to themselves, but to us, they were ministering the things which have now been reported to you. Do you realize that the sacrifice and faithfulness of the prophets of old were accomplished for your benefit? As you read the teachings of those inspired by the Spirit of God, Peter's reminding you that they wrote this down so that you and I and the Christians of Asia Minor to whom Peter is writing could read the story of God and find its fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ. Friends, you are a part of God's salvation program. The message of God's deliverance has been passed down to you. Now you are its benefactors. You are the ones for whom the prophets ultimately prophesied. And you are now the one, the ones who are storing up treasure in heaven that you might be participants in the kingdom glory that is to come. Peter says these are things which angels, angels desire to look into. That is to say the wonder and the glory of this salvation of God is something even angels pause, fix their gaze upon, in a vain attempt to comprehend it in all its fullness. The prophets of old could not comprehend it in in totality. The angels of God, likewise. You and I have a clearer picture today. What a marvelous salvation. The total salvation of God has now been reported. And what is to be our response to this? Verse 13. Therefore, therefore, gird up the loins of your mind. Be sober and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Therefore, key word, anytime you see a therefore, what's it there for? It refers to what Peter has just been speaking about. The marvelous salvation of God the prospect for kingdom glory, the opportunity that you and I have to be co-workers with Christ in the coming kingdom of God. Therefore, in light of this marvelous gift, this marvelous opportunity, gird up the loins of your mind. That is to say, tie up the belt of your mind in a sense. Tune your minds to this marvelous salvation and opportunity for glory. He says, be sober. This is the idea of being alert, being watchful. But you know, I find this word uh, to be interesting because I don't think Peter used it by happenstance. You know, as as we looked last week and the week before, this book starts in a context of trial and persecution and suffering. The people to whom Peter is writing are battling serious, serious persecution from the Roman rulers and citizens around them. They're being ostracized for their faith. The times are tough. 
They, they know that the glory is ahead of them, but yet, boy, it could be easy to just slack off. Peter says, be sober. I think of, uh, I think if we were to think a little bit more literally, what do people do? What do some people do when trials and tribulation come? They resort to the bottle. What do some people do? How do they, how do they respond when times are tough, when persecution, when trials come their way? They go and escape, either to alcohol or to some other vice. That's their means of escape. Peter says, no, 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 no. I want you to tie up the belt of your mind and I want you to be sober. I want you to look upon trials and persecutions and not look for escape, but to be alert, to be watchful. May your mind be sharp and don't fritter away your opportunity for glory by resorting to wine. Now, Peter here is most likely speaking metaphorically, but I think the word is significant. What do we do in the face of trial? Do we resort to the bottle or do we remain alert, recognizing that this is an opportunity for us to demonstrate our faithfulness? He says, rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Put your hope in the grace that is coming when Jesus Christ is revealed Put your hope in kingdom glory, Peter says. A grace that will be given to you when Jesus returns. This is the fourth time Peter has said that Jesus is coming back. Get ready. Verse 5, 7, 9, and now 13. Four times in 13 verses. Peter's focus, Peter wants the, the Christians of Asia Minor to focus on the coming of the Lord. Be ready for Him. Deal with trials in with the knowledge that Jesus is coming back. Verse 14, As obedient children, Peter here is comparing, comparing the kind of perspective, the kind of viewpoint that we are to have as we are girding up the loins of our mind, being sober and resting our our hope in the grace that is to come. He says, as obedient children, like obedient children. Why does he use this as as a quick illustration? You know, children enjoy pleasing their parents, don't they? I know that uh, there's nothing that, that really brings a child more joy than when his mother or father turn to him and say, you know, well done. You really pleased me by what you did there. Well done. You did, you did good on the test. You performed well in, in the sporting event. Well done. You know, children relish those moments. They enjoy being obedient to please their their parents. And Peter is likening our response to Jesus Christ as one of obedient children, desiring to please our Lord. Our readiness, our sober-mindedness, our hope in the coming kingdom glory is compared to that of an obedient child who is anticipating a reward for his obedience. Yet this readiness, this sober-mindedness, this hope cannot be achieved if we resort back to the former lusts that Peter mentions in verse 14. Notice what he says. Not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance. What were these former lusts? 1 Peter 4.3 says this. Later on in the book, this is what we'll come to in the future. It says, For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles... 
when we walked in lewdness, lusts, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. You see, prior to coming to Christ, Peter is making it crystal clear. Prior to coming to Christ, these believers in Asia Minor, that's their lifestyle. That was their lifestyle. I submit to you that 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 is a significantly pagan lifestyle. These weren't just nominal unbelievers. The Christians to whom Peter wrote weren't just, well, they just... They just didn't know about the Lord, but they they lived rather decent and orderly lives. That's not the case. The reason is, in the culture of that day, in the surrounding areas to whom Peter is writing, if you were to read historical records about the participation, the social customs, the ways in which people participated in entertainment and the sort, this is what you will see written in the historical records. Peter is not using grandiose language just to emphasize how sinful they were. He's actually describing the culture of that day. This is the norm of Asia Minor in the first century. It was a heinous culture. And let me ask you this. How do you think... How do you think their drinking buddies... How do you think their fellow party-goers responded to their sudden change of behavior? What happens when you're conducting yourself in one manner of sin, of sexual immorality, of lust, etc., and all of a sudden you come to Christ and you change your ways? What happens to those friends? What happens to that group in which you once associated with? I'll tell you what happens. Here's their response. You're weird. What happened to you? You used to be so much fun. You used to drink it up with us. You used to go to the parties. Man, you're strange now. You're different. You're weird. 1 Peter 4.4 In regard to these... They think it's strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. Duh. That's exactly what we would expect. But you see, the slander, the slander, the speaking evil of you, would soon turn to more serious issues. It would turn to intimidation. It would turn to physical abuse. And it would turn to even death. Oh, how easy it would be, Peter knows, for them to return to the former lusts. Oh, how easy it would be to avoid the social stigmatism that comes with Christianity and instead return to their former lives. Oh, how easy it would be to blend back in to the Gentile culture from which they had come from. Peter knew full well how tempting this must have been for these believers. You know, in southern Orange County, we don't deal with physical persecution, at least not to my knowledge. I'm sure that in part, perhaps it does happen. But we don't deal with physical persecution by and large for our Christian faith. Our trials come in other manners. We endure social stigmatism in high school. 
We endure social stigmatism in the public university, in the secular workplace, in the media, in politics. I would uh, I'd be remiss if I weren't to admit that I'm sure many of you have been ridiculed for your faith. If you haven't, I, I would actually I wonder how much your faith would stand out to those people. Because for some reason, being a follower of Jesus Christ elicits mockery. For some reason, it elicits ridicule. People don't like it that we are conducting ourselves in a manner differently from the ways of the world. And it is tempting. It is tempting when we are ostracized for our faith to cast our convictions aside and to blend in with the culture to avoid mockery. Are you willing to persevere when you are mocked and ridiculed for your faith? If the tide turns one day in this country and there is a threat of physical violence to those who name the name of Jesus Christ, what will be your response? What would be your response? Uh, Briefly, I want to highlight the phrase, in your ignorance. This is yet another indication that Peter is speaking here primarily to Gentile Christians. I made this case in our first sermon. I want to to come back to it just briefly. The Jewish community, by and large, did not participate in the sins listed in 1 Peter 4.3. They were not participants in those former lusts. In part, but not in totality. And even if it could be substantiated that they did participate in such sins, it is difficult to conceive how they would have committed such sins in ignorance. You see, the Jewish people were more than cognizant of their conduct as it relates to God's law. Only the Gentiles can be described as a people group whose sinful conduct could be associated with their ignorance of God's law. I refer you to Ephesians 4, 17-19, in which the Apostle Paul makes this clear. But notice again in 1 Peter 4, 4, it says, In regard to these, they think it's strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation. Note clearly the words, they think it's strange. The word strange there means astonished. They're bewildered. They're dumbfounded. I say clearly, the Gentiles would not be dumbfounded if Peter's audience did not run with them in the same flood of dissipation if Peter's audience were Jewish. They would not be dumbfounded. They would expect a Jewish audience to be different, to be unique. But Peter says they're astonished. They're dumbfounded. They're bewildered by their conduct. And this leads me strongly to believe that Peter is speaking to Gentile believers here. He's not speaking to Jewish believers. Instead of returning to the former lusts, we, ladies and gentlemen, are to exemplify conduct that is befitting of our spiritual rebirth. Notice verse 15. But as he who called you is holy, verse 15, as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. As God who called you is holy, Peter says, so you too. You too be holy. You know, this refers back to verse 2 of chapter 1, in which Peter notes that they've been called to sanctification. They've been called to obedience. They've been called to a consecrated life. Sprinkling of the blood of Jesus, he says. This is your calling. 
It is to be holy. It is not to resort to the former lusts. In the Levitical law, Peter's quoting from the Levitical uh, law in Leviticus chapters 11, 19, and 20 when he, when he quotes the phrase, Be holy, for I am holy. Friends, this is the proper response to a marvelous salvation, holiness, that we might obtain kingdom glory. Application. I want to point out three very identifiable ways in which we can learn from today's message. One, I want us to recognize that we need to rejoice. We, our mindset to be, is to be rejoicing that we are the benefactors, the benefactors of God's revelation to Old Testament prophets. It's for you. It's for me. When you read your Old Testament, when you read Isaiah, when you read Micah and others, what they wrote down was not ultimately understandable to them. It was not totally and finally understandable to them. Yet they made sacrifices. They sowed seeds of faithfulness so that you and I could reap the rewards. What a joy that is. Two, there are times when our faithfulness may not reap tangible results but I encourage you to take heart because your sacrifice may be for a coming generation of believers. This, this is what encompasses the message today, really. You, you might say, you know what, I've been faithful for a long time. I don't see results. You know what? That's perfectly understandable. That's exactly what the Old Testament prophets would have said. In fact, you, can, you read the Psalms and David's saying, Lord, I'm trying so hard here And yet I don't see anything. I don't see any results. David oftentimes calls out God and is a little bit angry with Him. Yet he is reminded again and again and again, results are coming. Your faithfulness is not going to be unrewarded. And if you and I can't see tangible results today, who cares? Because chances are, what you're doing today is for a coming generation. This church, we're a little smaller than we've been in times past. What you do today is for the next generation at Coast. And so take heart. Be faithful. Don't jump. Don't ship ship out your loyalty just because you haven't seen results. Recognize that faithfulness, true faithfulness, yields fruit. You will be rewarded in the kingdom to come. Three, our salvation is marvelous. It should cause us to be in awe. When we consider the magnitude of the glories offered us in Christ, it will inspire us to holy living. If you are, are, are having difficulty in your conduct, if you're having difficulty in dealing with temptation or sin, I urge you to remind your mind again and again of your salvation in Christ. Tune your mind to the Word of God. Read about your prospect of coming glory the opportunities that are given to you in Christ, and it will inspire you to holy living. It is perspective. It is transformation of the mind that Peter is speaking to here. Friends, let's be faithful in spite of not seeing results as the prophets of old were faithful and have given us such a godly and glorious heritage.